Well, Genesis 24, it's a lovely story, isn't it? The, uh, the search for a wife for Isaac. And I'd like to start off in verse uh, 1. Yahweh had blessed Abraham in all things. Well, of course, he had promised him that the ultimate blessing would be in his son, in his seed. And in Acts 3, that's interpreted as the, the blessing of forgiveness and, and salvation. But it is true to say that Abraham, in his lifetime, had a certain element of fulfillment of the, the promises that God gave to him. I mean, he was given a, a huge amount, uh, as we read here several times. And I don't think that we should be afraid to, to see in our present lives the fulfillment of the terms of the, the covenant that has also been made with us of, of blessing. It may not necessarily be in material terms, but my point is that it's not all jam tomorrow, that there is huge blessing in this life as well as in that which is to come. Now, he does the right thing, of course, in wanting to get a wife for his son who shares, uh, to some degree, his, uh, his faith. And yet he, he says in verse 7, Yahweh, the God of heaven, took me from my father's house. And that is repeated in Acts 7, where we're told that God took uh, Abraham, as he then was, from his father's house or family. Now, if you go back to the end of Genesis 11, and we looked at this when we talked about uh, Genesis 12, you see the fairly shaky uh, spiritual beginnings of Abraham, that while he is in Ur, he is told to leave uh, his his family, his father's house. So that's in chapter 12, verse 1. Yahweh had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. But there he is living in Ur, with his father Terah, and with Lot. And the point we made when we looked at this earlier was that actually Abraham was not immediately obedient. He doesn't get the promise and say, Okay, right, I'm leaving all of you. He doesn't. It's actually his father, Terah, who says, come on, let's get up and, and go. And in fact, we're told um, in chapter 11, verse 31, that Terah took Abraham, Abraham his son, along with Lot, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran, and they lived there until Terah died, and then, only then, did Abraham go onwards. So, in fact... God worked through Terah. We're told that it was God who took Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. But here we're told in chapter 11, verse 31, that Terah took Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. And we discussed when we looked at this uh, in the, the study on chapter 12 that in fact there could have been some threats from uh, other tribes in the area. There was some uh, reason why it was a good idea for them to leave. But the point is that Abraham did not separate from his father's house, from his father's family. It was God sort of working extra to sort of make him obedient to what he had told him to do. And even when Terah dies and they decide to leave Haran and go on towards Canaan, uh, in other words, to obey what God had uh, told him, Lot still goes with him. And it's in fact Lot who really chooses to leave Abraham. You remember when they have the discussion or the, the fallout really about the land not being enough to, look to, to sort of uh, stand all their flocks. And so they have this division between them and Lot eventually leaves him. 
But all that is the hand of providence. That really this was God working to make Abraham obedient. And I think now in later life, here in chapter 24, Abraham realizes that, that he had not in fact been as obedient as he might have been, nor as faithful as he might have been in his early days. And so he recognizes that when he, he says there, um, here in chapter 24, verse 7, it was Yahweh who took me from my father's house. In other words, yes, he told me to leave my father's house, but I didn't. But he took me out of it. It was God working through my father who took me out of the land of my birth. Now he realizes that grace, then, that was an operation in his own life. And he says in verse 7, He, this same God, will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So he's saying that in the same way as God by grace took him out of the land of his birth, so he believes that God would take this wife from another country to come and live with, with, with Isaac, his son. Now, that is grace. And if you sort of feel sorry for yourself and you wonder about grace in your life, etc., it seems to me that you've only got to think of your calling, because there is an element of calling. Without any doubt, there's an element of calling. Why are we where we are? How did we come to be baptized? Well, you could say, because I read the Bible. Well, yeah, but, you know, there was the hand of God in all that. It's not just down to cold stone free will and strength of iron in the soul to... To, to be sort of obedient and interested in God and responsive, there is this other hand of God. And of course many people would say rather lamely, so they feel, well, my parents were believers, or yes, through, through my family. Exactly. Now how's that for the, the hand of God? How's that for predestination? How's that for God calling you and taking you? Now, he believes very clearly that God will enable what um, what he knows is God's will. And he says that God will send an angel before you and set it all up for you. But of course the question that they discuss is, verse 8, if the woman isn't willing to follow you. So I think that they, they understood that God had set up a potential situation here, but there is still free will. And this is, I think, how this whole incident here opens up in some sense as a, a kind of a, a type, a, a prototype of the search for the bride of Christ through the preaching of the gospel. We have the free will to say, no, I will not come, just as she could have said. But without doubt, it is the will of God that we should respond. Not only respond to the basic gospel, but respond to all the other callings that we get from God throughout our lives. So he uh, goes on this mission, the, the servant goes on, on this mission, believing that he will succeed. And I think that that positive approach to preaching the gospel really ought to be seen in us, that he does this huge trip, and he's confident, and Abraham's confident, that although the woman has free will to respond or not, somehow this will prosper. And of course, God's word will not return to him vain, in vain, but it will prosper in that which it's intended to achieve. And so, in our witness to others, it's so easy to get discouraged, to think, well, at the best, 
I'm just making a witness. But actually, if you are positive about it, if you believe that actually God will work through his word, his word will not return in vain, you will believe in whatever little preaching enterprise you put your hand to, whether it's focusing on somebody and praying for that person, that they will respond to the gospel. Eventually, it will work, ultimately, with somebody somewhere. That if you want to spread the gospel and you know it is God's will that men and women should respond, if you make the effort, rather than saying, oh, no, no, yeah, nobody's interested, etc., God will bless you. He really will. And there's nothing like being involved in helping someone else to the gospel to strengthen your own faith. So he takes, verse 10, 10 camels, and he goes. And then, you know, the story, verse 13, he comes to the spring of water, and he prays to God and says, Let it happen, verse 14, that the young lady of whom I will say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she will say, Drink, and I will also give you camels drink. Let her be the one you have appointed. Now, that's a pretty big ask, because camels can hold a huge amount of water, and they've been on a long journey, so they were needing uh, refueling, and probably they they could hold, you know, 150 litres of water each, and there's 10 of them. There's 1,500 litres of water, and this woman's got to pull all that stuff up out of the well with a bucket. I mean, this is a job of some hours. Uh, it's a most unusual thing that he asked. And there's no doubt that if this woman said, yes, I will, then really, without any question, this was so freaky that it had to be the fulfillment of what he had said to God. Now, of course, this raises the question, should we, in our lives, set things like this up before God? Should we say, oh, may it be that if I see a blackbird, you know, on the, uh, on the balcony... Uh, that, that that is the sign that I should do this, that, and the other. And we can maybe discuss this afterwards, but this question of, should we set a sign for God? Should we do like Abraham's servant did, and say, God, if it's your will that this should happen, may so-and-so happen? Or may I, you know, may somebody say so-and-so to me? You know, should we do this? Well, of course you could say, well, Abraham's servant did it, so we should. I don't know. Uh, I guess everyone has got a different take on this. My comment for what it's worth would be this, that I think when we are first baptised and we first uh, start to sort of probe the boundaries of our relationship with God, I think this is the sort of thing that maybe we do. But I think as we mature spiritually, the will of God becomes that much clearer. And I think spiritually life does become in a sense, more plain sailing, because you see more clearly and more intuitively the way in which we should go. And one doesn't need to set these kinds of signs. Of course, the big fear is that, you know, if I say to God, well, should I do such and such if I happen to see a, uh, a white car um, outside my window in the next, you know, 60 seconds kind of thing, well, and you don't see a white car. And then you think, eh, well, maybe like God wasn't kind of playing the game with me. Maybe maybe that's irrelevant, asking for a sign. Maybe that's not what uh, God wanted or me to do, you know, to set him a sign, etc. So there's always that element of doubt in the whole thing. 
And I think, as I say, that as you mature spiritually, you don't have these crises about should I do this or should I do that? What is the right thing to do? I think in time you also come to realize that often there is not a right and wrong in a sort of binary sense on a lot of these issues. That you can go this way, you can go that way, but it depends on your motives. And with this kind of thing like he's got here, which is not a sort of a right or a wrong issue, I think that over time we feel so led by God that we don't have to do this kind of thing. That's my take about should we set signs for God. And I like the way in verse 13 he says, I am standing by the spring of water. Well, of course God knew he was standing by the spring of water. But I think we have an insight here into how we should pray to God. And all through the Psalms, you see this with David, that his Psalms are not really full of requests. They are very much telling God his situation. Now, that doesn't mean that we think God doesn't know unless I tell him. It's simply a method of opening up our lives before God. So then, this girl then amazingly does exactly the, the thing that he set, uh, set her up to do. Um, she says, yes, I'll give you a drink, and I will also just uh, spend a few hours uh, feeding, uh, giving water for your camels. And then, uh, when they're chatting, it turns out that she is a relative of Abraham exactly how he had asked that he wanted somebody basically from his uh, family now it's pretty obvious that their hopes that God would send his angel and set everything up and it was all going to work out it's just amazing it's quite clear that for sure this is it because the the sign that he set the condition that he set that this girl would have to on her own uh, initiative say well would you like me to uh, give ca the camels drink this is such a huge thing because it needed so much water etc that for sure this was it but now look at verse 21 the man looked at her amazed remaining silent to know whether Yahweh had made his journey prosperous or not well we read that and you think look it's obvious God has made your journey prosperous and you still doubt this fits into a theme which I think there is in the Bible of people being really surprised when they get an answer to prayer. Maybe the clearest one would be with uh, the people praying for Peter to be released. And uh, at the prayer meeting there in Acts 12, they're all praying for him to be released. And then he's released and he's knocking on the door and Rhoda uh, says, uh, comes in and says to them, you know what guys, Peter's at the door. And they're like, shut up, we're praying. Um, well, I didn't say that, but you know what I'm saying. They're like, you crazy, of course he's not there. It was the same, really, with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You know, you're crazy, of course not. Um, and so, th this is just a, a feature, I think, of us, that we find it so hard to believe that, really, God answers prayer. And when you look back in your own life at things you prayed for, and you got dramatic answers from God, yet the passage of time and reinterpreting maybe what happened it sort of loses its wonder and there's something in us that doesn't want to believe in that sense there's part of us that does want to believe and yet there's another part of us which continually thinks this is too good to be true and I suggest that 
the reason why a lot of people turn down the gospel or walk away from it is because of this problem. It's too good to be true. It can't be for free, you know. This is why people struggle with grace and they go back to legalism or they never accept grace in the first place. Because it can't be just like that. And the whole wonder of the thing is that it, it is. Now, there's a, another theme that comes out of this chapter, and that is the speed at which everything is done, and the speed with which Abraham's servant and Rebecca want to respond. You see in verse 28, the young lady ran and told her mother's house about these words. She doesn't sort of dawdle off there, thinking about the whole thing, chewing it, it over. She runs and tells them. And then, as we come on in in the chapter uh, towards the end, um, Abraham's servant is, is really pushy that she should go straight away. And her family say the logical thing in verse 55, yet let the young lady stay with us a few days, at least ten. And after that she will go. That's quite reasonable. Uh, how many of us who've got daughters would, uh, would say yes straight away to this kind of thing? We'd say, yeah, okay, but, you know, what's the hurry? You know, you've come a huge long way. Let's get to know you a little bit. Yeah, sure. Ten days, it's not, not long uh, compared to the rest of your life. Just sit and think it over. And he says to them, verse 56, Don't hinder me, since Yahweh has prospered my way. So his query about, has God made my way prosperous, back in verse 21, is now resolved. He, he knows. The pen is dropped. God is in this. And so he therefore says, if she doesn't come straight away, this will hinder me. Well, you know, on a human level, no. <clears throat> Ten days isn't going to make any difference. But he feels that God is in all this, and that he's being led onwards, that the angel has gone before him, and he's eager to follow where that angel is leading him. And Rebecca's got the same idea, because when they come to her, and they say, okay, well, what do you want to do? 58, will you go with this man? They mean, do you want to go straight away, or do you want to wait ten days, as we think you should? Lovely words. She said, I will go. So she was caught up in this speed of response as well. When you come to the New Testament, you get that same impression of a quick response. Reading through especially the, the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Mark, the speed at which the Lord's ministry moves, or how it's presented as moving, is very, very quick. And you get a, a, a lot of words like immediately, straight away, uh, in that very hour etc. Mark's Gospel, if you look for those words and put a ring around them in your Bibles, it really stands out. You come to the Acts of the Apostles and you read about baptism, and there's no doubt about it that every example of baptism there is immediate. I mean, a classic one really is the jailer at Philippi. There's been an earthquake and the prison's wide open and the prisoners might run away and he might lose his life. And what does he do? That same hour, the record says, he was baptized. That same hour of the night, he was baptized. And of course, you've got all the 3,000 know, 3, on the day of Pentecost, etc., that immediately they were baptized. This immediacy of response, not only to baptism, but generally in responding to all the calls from the Lord that we get, the nudges, the winks, the, uh, the shoves, etc., 
this is a, a major theme, not only in the book of Acts, not only in the first chapters of Mark, not only here in Genesis 24, but all the way through. And I think what that means is that we should not throw caution totally to the winds, but throw it quite a bit to the winds, in the sense that once you sense that God is at work, respond quickly. Respond quickly. And people don't like responding quickly because they're worried they might make a fool of themselves, because they're worried that, well, I might have overlooked this or that or the other. This is the abandon, if you like, of love. But we're in good hands. We're, we're working with God, with the Lord Jesus, with the angels. Once you sense that you're onto something, go that way. And the faster you run in that path that is set before you, the more it all falls into place. Whereas if you say, okay, yeah, let's just have a break for ten days, like uh, they wanted to, you can end up hindering, hindering the response. You can end up hindering the, the path that has been set up. So I would say then that in our preaching of the gospel there should be a, a, a pushing of people, an encouragement of people towards baptism, just as they themselves should want to respond quickly. And we ourselves in our lives should also likewise respond quickly. So often I catch myself thinking, don't do it now. You can do that tomorrow. Put that off. Not just right now. I'll do that this evening. And I may have all sorts of good reasons for that, but more often than not, that is the flesh. That is the flesh saying, nah, don't do it uh, at all. You know, put it off, put it off. And th there's a number of proverbs that talk about this uh, feature, as I would see it, of human nature. The desire to put off response to God until some other time. And, as I say, this is not to encourage irresponsibility, <clears throat> but once you get that sense that, really, I am in a mutual two-way relationship with the Father and with His Son, then we will go in the way that He has given us. David says a couple of times in Psalm 119, I will run, I will run in the way of your commandments. And that's what you see here in Genesis 24, it's what you see in the Acts records of, of baptism, it's what you see in the early chapters of Mark, etc. This is the way. Not walk in it, but run in it. And once you get in that upward spiral, once you get, as it were, on the road, don't stop me now. Because really and truly, we can see that we are being led towards God's kingdom.